like, I just think that's amazing. Average things that we keep in our cupboards that we really don't mm-hmm. think about or our fridges or our pantries or however we envision them. And they just sort of end up having a cool, weird history. They do. They have, like you said, a cool, weird history and so much story behind them. There are so many stories in our cupboards. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Well, hi, Leigh. Hi, Kim. How are you? I am doing very well, thank you. I'm having a lovely summer. How are you? Also having a really lovely summer. We're actually back in Montana. Lots of fires, though, which is not a good thing. Other than that, really nice summer. Speaking of fires, last time we spoke, I was visiting my family in Minnesota, and they were experiencing a lot of fire smoke coming down from Canada. When I returned to my home in Seattle, suddenly we were also getting affected by it. So it's made for some beautiful sunrises and sunsets, a little apocalyptic sometimes, but we seem to be having a little bit of a break in the weather. Coastal breezes makes you count your blessings, that's for sure. And we're supposed to be getting rain here this coming week, which is going to be really nice to help clear a lot of this out. Yes, I'm a little envious. We're having our second longest dry spell, uh, I think, in Seattle history, if I'm remembering right. Don't take me at gospel truth, but we're very ready for rain over here. But we still are able to do a couple of fun things, a little bit of travel, a little bit of outdoor cooking, as we've been talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. We have a really fun, fan-driven topic today. We are returning to what's in your pantry. Indeed. So tell me, which one did you pick? Well, thanks to Commune Fanzine, I think I'm pronouncing that right, they suggested that we maybe tackle mustard, which I have ample samples of in my (laughs) pantry. So that was a fun topic for me. And how about for you? Well, for my topic, this was submitted by Gabriel Gurain, which, again, I hope I am pronouncing right. The request was for turmeric. I'm really excited to hear about turmeric. Tell me more about turmeric. I absolutely will tell you more about turmeric. So the first thing, and I am sure that this is the first thing that pops into your mind, too, when I think about turmeric is curry powder. And uh, we talk about curry specifically in our curry episode. But this spice goes so far beyond being just a component in a spice blend. The use of turmeric dates back about 4,000 years to India, specifically to the Vedic culture, where it was used in cooking, religious ceremonies, as well as for its medicinal properties. A couple of fun facts about turmeric. It belongs to the ginger family, which I did not know. I didn't know that either. The compound that gives turmeric its color is curcumin and India is the largest producer as well as consumer of turmeric. They use 80% of the crops that are produced, which I thought was fascinating. Wow, that is fascinating. It was also compared to saffron 
by Marco Polo when he discovered it. Please note that I am doing air quotes right now. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> in 1280 AD. And it was used as a substitute for saffron oh. during the medieval times. It was called India's saffron, actually. Oh. Yeah. And uh, traditionally, I'm super excited about this next part because I get to have some of these kind of freaky food facts to tell you about. Yay. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Are they fun when you find them? They are really fun when you find them. So traditionally, the turmeric rhizome, turmeric is from the root, the rhizome of the plant itself is where we get the spice. So traditionally, the rhizomes were placed in pans covered with water and leaves and a secret ingredient. Cow dung. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. That is a fun fact, isn't it? Yes. Jeez. And so then they were steamed and boiled and dried. The cow dung process is discouraged today for a lot of obvious reasons. So today they're just boiled and dried in the sun, polished, and then they're ground. As a traditional medicine, turmeric's been used for centuries in many parts of the world. And this is the one thing that I think that we are seeing here in, in our Western cultures. We're starting to see it become this mm -hmm. superfood, but it has been mm -hmm. used for centuries. It was a really important spice in Ayurveda that's one of the oldest holistic healing systems originating in India. And we talked about Ayurveda in our curry episode. We also talked about it in our aphrodisiacs episode. That's right, we did. So some of the things that traditionally that turmeric has been used for was to provide this overall energy to the body, relieving gas, mm -hmm. dispelling worms, improving digestion, regulating menstruation, dissolving gallstones, relieving arthritis. And then in South Asian countries, it's used as an antiseptic for wounds, burns, and bruises. In Pakistan, it's used for its anti-inflammatory agents. It also is used as a gastrointestinal remedy. And in India, it's used to purify the blood and remedy different skin conditions. And as I was saying a little bit earlier, we're starting to see more use of turmeric in Western medicine, in our modern medicines, and it's being prescribed mm -hmm. for various diseases. But this new modern medicine history is about 100 years old versus the 4,000 years of the traditional medicines that I just described. Right. The herbal medicine, biomolecular and clinical aspects lists over 100 in vivo and clinical studies. And in vivo means it's studied within an entire organism. These studies are of the therapeutic effects of turmeric on several cancers, skin tumors, cardiac, kidney disorders, depression, inflammation, wound healing, stimulation of bile flows, healing peptic ulcers. And the conclusion of all of this is, and I quote, phytochemical analysis of turmeric has revealed a large number of compounds, including curcumin, which is the compound that gives turmeric its color, volatile oil, mm. and curcuminoids, which have been found to have potent pharmacological properties, end quote. It was really fascinating reading this, fascinating and difficult reading this 
biomolecular <laughs> clinical like read. <laughs> was really challenging read. But again, very interesting to see that we're starting to look at a lot of these, what we would classify as folk remedies, but we're looking yeah. at them from a perspective of the compounds that actually did provide what these traditional medicinal components did. I am going to bring up both the curry and the aphrodisiac episodes again. I know we've already mentioned them, but this was also something we've been discussing this. The idea that the foods that we eat that we know make us feel good, we right. don't know why, but we notice there's an effect. I And not really understanding all the science behind it, but now science is backing up these things that we have observed in our own diets as human beings for 4,000 plus, obviously, a long time. It's always fun to find that science is backing up these real life experiences. Right. And the Ayurvedic diet was very specific about trying to eliminate the foods that make you feel sluggish, gassy, just intestinal distress, slow, tired, and really to amplify those foods that have all these flavonoids and alkaloids and fun, fun things that curcuminoids, that these properties do have these effect on our bodies to reduce inflammation, which is huge, especially huge in like our modern health culture. It's right. what we talk about all the time now. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that the Ayurvedic prescription was to create this balance. So you did look at how all right. of these foods were affecting you, even if you liked them. If they made you feel bad, you'd pull them away. Easier said than done, as we know from our comfort foods episode. <laughs> so true. So true. Beyond its medicinal uses, the Hindu culture really reveres turmeric as sacred. It's used in wedding ceremonies. A string that's dyed yellow is tied around the bride's neck by the groom, similar to exchanging rings. It's just tied like a necklace. In some parts of India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, turmeric paste is applied to the skin of the bride and the groom to make the skin glow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It can be used as a dye. I've dyed my fair share of spatulas and aprons making curries, so <laughs> it's a thing. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure I've told you, Leigh, that I got into serious trouble with my mom one day because I was experimenting with spices in the cupboard, as you do, and I dyed all of our tea towels um, yellow because I was wiping my hands off. I've turned many a kitchen thing yellow with turmeric. Yes. Yeah. And speaking of dyeing, the Buddhist robes are dyed with turmeric. And the oh. color that turmeric gives it is associated with Lord Krishna. And though not quite as auspicious as the Buddhist robes or an association with Lord Krishna, turmeric is used to color foods like cheese, butter, yellow cake mixes, ice cream, orange juice, cake icings, cereals, sauces, popcorn, and yogurts. And... As I mentioned before, today we're seeing turmeric being used in health and wellness communities for its natural healing properties. Golden milk or turmeric tea to whiten teeth, mm. brighten your skin, mm -hmm. as we mentioned with the bride and groom. And it's even used in sunscreen formulas. Really? Oh, yeah. that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the turmeric tea and, and how it's becoming ochreant now yes. to drink turmeric teas. My coffee shop in my building very prominently offers a turmeric tea, uh, which I think is really interesting. That it is being that prominently brought out of, say, the health food store. Now it's come way more mainstream. 
Yeah, it is. I, I agree. Even here in Montana, we're seeing more of those wow. types of things. Yeah, which has been really interesting. Now, as I mentioned before, and we did talk about curries, obviously, in our curry episode, mm-hmm. but we were really introduced to turmeric through the British curry recipes in the mid 17th century. That's when we started to see these turmeric curries. And I think that you mentioned a curry recipe in Hannah Glass's 1747 cookbook, The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Simple. That same cookbook also has a recipe for Indian pickle made with turmeric. So the next time you make something with turmeric, not only will it add a unique earthy, peppery flavor to your dish, you can feel good that it's also improving your well-being. Gosh, that was really fascinating. You know, I I guess I never really gave much thought to where turmeric was from. And the fact that it's from the ginger family, the fact that it's a rhizome, all of this is a surprise to me. The list of its medicinal properties is a surprise to me and yet completely sensible. The list that I gave was like maybe a quarter of the things that I could have listed. Thank you. And thank you to our friends for recommending that we look into turmeric and and tell you more about it. I have brand new respect for turmeric now, and I'm going to dye all my dish towels yellow in honor of it. So I'm excited to continue this discussion with mustard. It's something, again, I think that we tend to have in our pantries, tend to overlook as far as its origin, where it actually comes from. So let me tell you what I learned about mustard. Please do. One of my favorite things about mustard is a line from Alice Wonderland, which is one of my all-time favorites and definitely a desert island book for me, where the Duchess says to Alice, flamingos and mustard both bite. I just love that saying. It's ridiculous. It's surrealism, but it's also true. So... Whenever I think of mustard, I I think of the Duchess and her saying. I love that, too, because there's this visual that comes with it, right? They're both so vibrant. You get all of a sudden Mm -hmm. your brain starts firing fuchsia pink and this bright yellow. And it's a really fabulous quote from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And thinking of Lewis Carroll, his life at Cambridge, he was a scholar, Reverend Alan Dodson a.k.a. Lewis Carroll. I can imagine him putting these thoughts together. The idea of the flamingo and the mustard, not something you would ever put together in the same sentence ordinarily. And yet he was able to pull the two together into this very evocative, very visceral thing. You can feel the bite on your tongue of the mustard just as easily as you can feel the bite of a flamingo on your hand, perhaps. Even if we've never been bitten by a flamingo, (laughs) I think most of us probably haven't. You still have that sense of sharp, intense pain. And that's what some mustards are really like. Went to a German beer garden with my family in Minnesota and we ordered these beautiful pillowy big soft pretzels and they come with a little bit of mustard and I was so naive. (laughs) And so I took a big hit of mustard on my beautiful buttery soft pretzel and I thought I was going to (laughs) die. It was pain shooting straight up my nose into the front of my brain And I'm crying and whimpering. And now I'm okay with spicy foods. I'm actually pretty spice tolerant. No, this mustard nearly took me out. It was so strong. Respect the mustard. Respect the flamingos and respect the mustard. Absolutely. Please, I beg of you. Well, the the mustard as we know it derives from mustard seeds. And the plant is a member of the brassica family, which I didn't know. And that was cool. The condiment that we have come to love is a companion to all manners of sausages, frankfurters, hot dogs, weenies, 
So much more is really simple. Ground, bruised, or whole mustard seeds mixed with water, vinegar, lemon juice, wine, or other liquids, and seasoned with salt, and sometimes other spices, ultimately creates a tangy, sometimes spicy sauce ranging in color from bright yellow to dark brown. Now, based on what we know about turmeric, I'm pretty sure that those other spices is in the mix here for color, if not for flavor as well. So see, turmeric and mustard, best friends, they go hand in hand. <laughs> I'm a diehard yellow mustard fan, and I actually will go to great lengths to prepare food specifically to be a yellow mustard vehicle. So corn dogs, pretzels, hot dogs, not things I would eat ordinarily. And if there's not mustard around, I'm actually not that interested. As an adult, I have really come to appreciate other mustards as a recipe component or ingredient. I cannot resist a whole seed mustard sauce, especially as a companion to something like pork belly or pork tenderloin. It, if I see that on a menu at a restaurant, I'm ordering it. There's just something about that whole seed mustard that I think I just like popping them between my teeth. But this was really exciting to learn. The English word mustard derives from the Anglo-Norman mustard and Old French mustard. Modern French is moutard for this word. The first element is from Latin mustum or must, because it was originally prepared by making a paste of ground mustard seeds and must, or unfermented grape juice. The second element also comes from Latin ardens, meaning hot or flaming. We commonly see mustard in one of four preparations, and it's funny because you think of, oh, there must be dozens of types of mustards, and there are, there truly are, but they're really boiled down to four actual types of preparations. Dijon mustard, ground mustard blended with white wine made popular and very famous in Dijon, France. English, or yellow mustard, contains turmeric, which gives it its signature hue. Bavarian sweet mustard has a coarser appearance, and whole seed mustard is usually comprised of black mustard seeds. So really, it's a matter of how you treat the mustard seed. Do you ground it? Do you bruise it? Do you smush it around a little bit? Do you leave it whole? And then, of course, what are you mixing it with in order to make a paste or to make a sauce? Although mustard seeds are found all over the world, there is evidence of mustard plants being cultivated in the Indus Valley until 1852 B.C. Wow. It was the Romans who experimented with cooking mustard seeds. The De Re Cocinaria, a Roman cookbook dating to the late 4th century C.E., contains a receipt for a glaze for spit-roasted boar, contains a mixture of ground mustard, pepper, caraway, lovage, coriander seeds, dill, celery, thyme, oregano, onion, honey, vinegar, fish sauce, and olive oil. Remember that the Roman Empire was really vast, and so it appears that mustard seeds made their way to Roman Gaul, which we now call France and mustard makers appeared on the French royal registers in Paris starting around 1292, with the region of Dijon being a recognized center for mustard making. In 1877, the most famous Dijon mustard makers, Gray Poupon, was established as a partnership between Maurice Gray, a mustard maker with a recipe incorporating white wine, and Auguste Poupon, his financial backer. Now, any child of the 80s remembers a now infamous Grey Poupon commercial. Two limousines pull up next to each other. One passenger says to the other, pardon me, do you have any Grey Poupon? In that 
completely poncy, fancy accent. Mm -hmm. Second extends it to the first with a gloved hand and says, but of course. Of course, the connotation here being that only the finest mustard connoisseurs would have Grey Poupon. I actually never knew that it was a partnership between two people. I thought Poupon was something and that it being gray was a thing. Didn't know it was that old either. 1877 yeah. to now. We see a lot of those brands from Europe that have these really long, enduring histories. Mustard also made a stake in England. Some say in Tewkesbury and others say in Durham, which, as an 18th century saying goes, is known for seven things. Wood, water, pleasant walks, law, gospel, old maids, and mustard. In the 13th century, mustard seeds were ground at the table and used to flavor meats that were probably beginning to rot. As food preservation techniques improved, mustard undertook a major transformation in 1720 when one, quote, Mrs. Clements, unquote, because no one has ever been able to figure out what her first name was, allegedly invented a new method of extracting the full flavor from mustard seeds by grinding seeds in a mill similar to the process of grinding flour from wheat, producing a very fine, smooth mustard powder. And we've talked about milling before. The more you grind it between two stones, the finer product you have. The story continues that King George I was delighted by this new mustard, new English mustard, and soon everyone in London was keen to follow royal fashion and have mustard at table. Rival mustard firms sprang up around the country, rivaling, of course, either Tewkesbury or Durham, including London, where Mr. Keene and Sons manufactured the product starting in 1742 and supplying it to taverns and shop houses. That firm was acquired by Coleman's of Norwich in 1814 and is allegedly memorialized in the saying, keen as mustard. But I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. There is, though, another version, of course, that attests to the early use of mustard as a condiment in England dating to 1390. And this is from the book, The Form of Curry, written by King Richard II's master cooks, where mustard balls were composed of coarse ground mustard seed combined with flour and cinnamon, moistened, rolled into balls, and dried. These are easy to store, and then once combined with vinegar or wine, make a on-demand mustard paste as needed. The town of Tewkesbury, known for seven things, was known for its high-quality mustard balls, originally made with ground mustard mixed with horseradish, which were then exported to London and other parts of the country. And these were specifically mentioned, apparently specifically mentioned in William Shakespeare's play, King Henry IV, Part II. Stepping away from the English and Dijon-style mustards, a sweet brown Bavarian mustard is made from kibbled mustard seed, sweetened with sugar, applesauce, or honey. And that was first created in 1854 by Johann Conrad de Vailly in Munich. It's typically served with Weisswurst, a traditional Bavarian sausage made from minced veal and pork back bacon, or Lieberkasse, a rich meatloaf made from finely ground corned beef, pork, bacon, and onions, and baked until it forms a dark brown crust. Mm. Again, instantly hungry. But the finely milled bright yellow mustard made popular in the United States by Frenches made its debut at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. The mustard, as I said before, gets its distinctive sunny yellow from turmeric and is the most commonly used mustard in the United States and is also tied with Dijon in Canada for being the most popular mustard. 
A very mild prepared mustard. This is used regularly to top hot dogs, sandwiches, pretzels, hamburgers, and is also a component ingredient of many potato salads, barbecue sauces, salad dressings. We also have this other cool variation. I think it's mostly American stadium mustard, which is made with only brown mustard seed. It is a mildly spicy brown mustard, more similar to European mustards than American deli-style brown mustards. Stadium mustard is really unique in that it is homogeneously brown in color compared to traditional coarse ground brown deli mustards, which are more modeled in appearance and may feature both yellow and brown mustard seeds. Stadium mustard was originally served at the Cleveland Municipal Stadium and it's famous in Cleveland. It is now served at over 150 stadiums in the United States. There's a really interesting side twist to this that I will put on our social media about how stadium mustards came to be available in American homes. I don't know that I've ever seen stadium mustard before. It's something that you would only get at the stadium. So it was part of that tradition of take me out to the ball game and your Cracker Jacks. And it was, it was something you would only get when you went to a game. I'm excited to see the social media <laughs> post on this one. I'd love yeah, to learn this, more. This is going to be fun. Yeah. And there are other mustard variations that I've learned about that I want to actually see if I can make. Because now that I actually understand what mustard sauce or the condiment is made out of, it's easy enough to get mustard powder at the store or even to buy mustard seeds and grind them yourself. Some of the mustard variations I learned about in my research include beer mustard, honey mustard. That one's pretty mm -hmm. pretty popular and famous. Hot pepper mustard, which mm. actually includes hot peppers, and a whole host of mustards made with alcoholic spirits like whiskey, brandied peach, and cognac, mm. which I think sounds really yummy. And why not whip it up at the table? There's no reason not to. I loved that concept you were talking about, that it would actually be prepared at the table. Yeah. It seems like it would be something that not only was it very visually beautiful, but the aromas from the mustard and all of the yeah. spices and either the wine or the vinegars that were going into it would be quite an experience in itself. Yeah. Why not have that visceral experience with the colors and the aromas and everything? And then mustard can be added to dishes as a primary spice, not necessarily making it into paste or making it into a sauce. As is popular in East Indian cuisine, added to mixed vegetables or fish curries, it can impart a unique flavor to some Indian recipes. But I did find this reference that in the Netherlands and northern Belgium, there's a dish of mustard soup, which contains mustard, cream, parsley, garlic, and pieces of salted bacon. Mmm. I've already claimed that I can't resist mustard seeds. I might have to try it. Yeah. I'm not brave enough to promise it quite yet. Okay. I might give it a try. Okay. All right. I'll see if I can relocate a recipe, but that could be fun just to even reinvent one. Yeah. Okay. This requires a little bit more research. This does. We, yeah. we will report back. Yes. Now, for me, being a native Southern Californian, Mustard has also this other kind of element to it, and it's not quite a food thing, but it is as well. So have you ever heard of the mustard seed trail in California? No. So the story I always heard about California's wild mustard, which blooms in the mm. spring, bright yellow, and it's everywhere. It's actually pretty invasive. We shouldn't glorify it <laughs> too, but it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Definitely a harbinger of spring. And the story I've always heard about California's wild mustard is that the seeds were brought to California in the early 18th century from Spain. 
as Father Junipero Serra traveled from the region of about what we call San Diego north to the area that we call San Francisco, when he traveled this route in 1713, his party scattered mustard seeds to create the Camino Real, or the Royal Way. Every spring, the mustard plants bloom golden yellow to mark the pathway between the missions established along the way. So it was meant to be this visual marker Mm. of where to go. It's an invasive species, though, so it went everywhere. But yeah, it's truly a sight to see, actually, in the spring. There is a historical marker at the City Hall in Mission Viejo, California, that tells this version of the Mustard Seed Trail. That in 1769, Gaspar de Portola led a group of Spanish soldiers on a thousand-mile march from Baja, California to San Francisco. His purpose was to locate the ports of San Diego, Monterey, and to establish a series of churches and military posts. The route he followed wandered north along the coast from San Diego, connected the sites of the missions San Luis Rey, San Juan Capistrano, and San Gabriel, turned west to Los Angeles, and then north through the Salinas Valley inland from Monterey, and at last reached the site of Mission San Francisco de Asis, popularly called Mission Dolores. Because there were no roads in those days, it was easy for travelers to lose their way. According to legend, the Spaniards sowed wild mustard seeds as they walked, and that plant's yellow flowers marked the trail for their return and for others to follow. This thoroughfare linking California's presidios and missions was called El Camino Real, the Royal Road, or the King's Highway, a designation given to roads that were public rather than private. It was used extensively by adventurers and traders, by explorers and settlers, by soldiers and priests, Today, light poles bearing mission bells remind travelers to the reason this road was established, and each spring, yellow blossoms once again bloom along California Mustard Seed Trail. (laughs) I like both of those stories, kind of like Hansel and Gretel, to mark your way and then to find your way back. And that was a path of safety as well. This idea that it was to, to prevent you from getting lost, but that it was so brilliant and golden and that there's these romantic views of gold Mm. everyone was searching for gold right and that yellow color would have definitely evoked that personally i'm not so sure about the sowing part of this did they absolutely just toss seeds out willy-nilly to mark their pathway again i think it's a little bit of a romantic vision Mm. i think it's a little bit more likely that the seeds pass through via diet rather than intentional <laughs> cultivation. But truly, that's just pure speculation on my part. That's one of those things we'll never really know. Right. But they remain. They are an absolutely indelible marker mm-hmm. that people passed that way. They passed through those lands mm-hmm. and in that specific route with the purpose of creating missions. To this day, we have visual proof that they were there which is cool when you think about it. It is really cool. that, And it remains, right? It, it's that continuous reminder that these things did happen. And those people, like you said, did pass through here. There's this legacy, yeah. the mustard legacy. Yeah. I, and I love that. It's living history. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like, I just think amazing. that's amazing. Both the things that we've talked about today, turmeric and, and mustard, average things that we keep in our covers that we really don't mm-hmm. think about, or our fridges or our pantries or however we envision them, and they just sort of end up having a cool, weird history. They do. They have, like you said, a cool, weird history and so much story behind them. There are so many stories in our cupboards. Yeah, for sure. 
Oh, gosh. I remember going all the way back to one of our very first episodes about food memories and cinnamon. And yes. And I had my very funny moment with that episode. I have so many cinnamon sticks in my cupboard right now. Yeah. Because I keep forgetting I have them and I buy more. <laughs> but that, but the fact that I can go to my run-of-the-mill average grocery store and I can up until 1 a.m. in the morning go buy cinnamon bark that was this massively important spice. Yes. Incredibly expensive. And I'm just keeping it in my cupboard. Yeah. Incredible. Absolutely. This spice that had so much story around it yeah. to keep it at that level the just the folklore that was around cinnamon stick or how casually we keep salt now yes That's the other thing that i've learned I, I, and i'm not meaning not yeah. fully intending to do a retrospective but oh my gosh the things that we've learned in our first 26 episodes has yeah. just been astounding it has and been. i love doing all the episodes that we do i especially also love the what's in your pantry because it does give me a chance to go, oh, wow, the fact that I can so casually have both cinnamon and salt and saffron and turmeric and like a bunch of other things in my cupboard. And if I run out, I can actually go easily procure them mm -hmm. and not spend thousands of dollars. Right. Although in the case of saffron, that you might. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you might. Just that we do it so casually now. It's right. astounding to me. It is. It really is. That's what's in my pantry. All right. I literally have a bottle of Dijon mustard and a bottle of yellow mustard. That is what I keep at home. I definitely have turmeric in my pantry. And I, I think I'm going to double up my earthy, peppery well-being with a turmeric latte and some golden popcorn with honey. <gasps> oh, that sounds amazing. Right? I, yeah, I happen to have some amazing locally made bratwurst in my fridge right now that is waiting to be et. I'm going to go hurt some bratwurst right now. That's nice. It's closest thing I have to spit roasted boar. So. Right. It's pretty close. It's close. Yeah. <laughs> That's close enough for Closest modern, we're gonna modern, get. modern kitchen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, the end of summer is coming and oh. that means... The start that, of school. Well, start of school. We're going to go back to school. So next time, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about school lunches. And boy, is there ever an interesting history around school lunches. We talk about so many fabulous facts in this episode. We do. And you're going to have to tune in to find out, are we able to debunk the myth? The United States once said that ketchup was a vegetable. Indeed. You have to tune in to find out. I just want to thank Gabriel for asking us to take a look into turmeric, and I certainly hope that we have provided some tasty tidbits about turmeric for you. And I really want to also give a shout out to uh, Commune Fanzine for the recommendation that we talk about mustard. Thank you very much for the suggestion. And remember, watch out for flamingos and for mustard because they both bite. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing 
the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.